Hello fellow adventurers and welcome to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I'm an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together, we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. Today, we have two special guests in the Nerd Lab. And if it weren't for Corona, they might even be physically in the Nerd Lab right next to me because we live very close together. But not only do we live very close uh, to each other, but we also have a very, very similar taste when it comes to games. Um, they enjoy strategy card games as much as I do, and they have designed and published their own card game. It relies heavily on skill. It, it is about uh, buying sell uh, swords and my all-time favorite mechanic, drafting. I am very curious to talk about um, their game, their journey, and their plans for the future. Please welcome with me uh, Dario and Fabian, the designers and publishers of Crimson Company. Welcome to the show, Dario and Fabian. Thanks for having us. Hey, yeah, Marvin. thank you very much. So before we um, start talking um, about the design process of Crimson Company, um, please um, introduce yourself and tell our listeners how your journey as a game designer um, started and where your love for strategy card games comes from. So maybe Dario, do you want to start? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I um, yeah a little bit stumbled into the games industry in 2009 um, when I started as a game designer at Travian. Uh, I came there because I was a passionate Travian uh, play player. This is the browser game from the early German browser game days, um, and I was among the first players uh, in this game and. Um, Yeah, I gave some uh, suggestions to the programmer. And yeah, some years later, he asked me if I want to join as a game designer um, into his company that was built up uh, until then. And I was uh, astonished how big Javian uh, Games had become. And yeah, since then, it's 10 years ago or more than 10 years ago, um, I'm working for Travian Games as a game designer on several projects. Um, I worked at Traveling Kingdoms. Currently, I'm working uh, on Arkham, Rams at War. And yes, then uh, several years ago, um, Fabian joined the company and also as a game designer. And uh, we found out that uh, we both, of course, uh, liked playing strategy games and we spent our lunch breaks um, playing Hearthstone and other kind of stuff. And yeah, over the time we found out that Hearthstone is kind of um, yeah boring to us. We yeah did the arena mode because this was the only thing that uh, was a bit exciting because you had this randomness of building your deck and then um, competing against other random decks. Um, we got some joy out of this. Um, but yeah, the main branch of the game was much too uh, luck-based and also um, it was kind of expensive or grindy to always uh, keep up with the new cards that came out. Um, so we um, someday 
kind of decided to do our own better card, card game. And uh, we indeed uh, first thought about um, doing a card game that is maybe digital. And then we um, yeah, throw this thought away because we thought, okay, we, live, uh, we already work at the digital company and we know how much uh, effort this is. So we do a physical card game. And uh, we found a small, or first of all, we built a prototype and did some iterations. At, at some point, we um, invited our colleagues to play with us. Um, previously, we had already played some prototypes. I did some um, game prototypes earlier. And at some point, or quite early in the process, to be honest, um, our colleagues said, oh, that's really cool. Um, you should probably, or you should definitely uh, publish this and redo it. So we found a company with a goal to kickstart the game. And yeah, we did so. We first um, printed a very small, or not a very small, but a smaller print of 1,000 copies in order to um, prepare the Kickstarter and send out some review copies and so on. And uh, then we did a Kickstarter of the deluxe uh, version. Uh, we were quite happy with the outcome because we basically um, did not think that many people would be interested in the game. But in the end, it was about 1,500 backers. And yeah, uh, with that, we um, felt that it makes sense to go on with the project. And since then, we did two additional Kickstarter campaigns um, with uh, two expansions. And we also, uh, at some point, got government funding in order to do a digital um, prototype of the game. And yeah, we are now with the Bundesförderung in Germany with this um, early version of it. Uh, we had the chance to even develop this prototype into a uh, MVP, so a very reduced, you would call it vertical slice, slice maybe. Uh, so a, a version that will be playable quite nicely in two months, hopefully. Um, because in the end of February, we um, do our third Kickstarter and we will do a combined Kickstarter of an expansion and this uh, digital version because we want to bring this digital version uh, to the PC. And we also uh, want uh, to get some money in order to further develop the game. And of course, want to check in this Kickstarter if everything um, or if enough interest is in this digital version. Yeah. That sounds very interesting and uh, like an awesome journey over the last couple of years. So, uh, Fabian, do you want to um, tell the listeners a little bit about uh, about you and how you got into the uh, into that business? Yeah, Dario basically answered all the possible questions already. Um, yeah, so basically, my journey, uh, my game design journey, I guess, started like in the year 2000 when I was making some RPG maker projects um, that were just pretty generic fantasy JRPG type things, just using the 
RPG Maker 2000 that came out at the time. And um, then I kind of lost track of the whole making games uh, thing. I was more into making music during my uh, time when I was finishing school and stuff and only really got back into it when I um, started studying computer science in 2010 and um, yeah was basically got very interested in the whole system analysis and uh, system design aspect of computer science and um, all, also at the same time um, found out about several blogs of of game designers and yeah really realized there's this whole discipline that's not like the obvious things that you associate with games like art and programming and sound and stuff but there's this whole rule set design thing and um yeah then basically went into that rabbit hole and read every book on the topic i could find and uh, ended up writing my master's thesis about uh, game design for digital learning games. And um, then after I finished my studies, uh, right away tried to uh, get into a game design position, uh, which is not that easy because there aren't that many, especially in Germany. <laughs> and um, yeah, got the chance to start at Travian Games and Dario was in involved uh, in hiring me as well. And um, yeah, I w have been working there together with him for uh, until the end of last year, basically, and then uh, changed companies. But um, yeah, we, as you said, during the time we we had this uh, this half stone lunch break thing going on regularly, and over time, kind of started analyzing the flaws of the game more than we <laughs> were still playing the game, and. Um, yeah, basically tried out all kinds of different card games and strategy games and uh, tried to combine them all into the best possible dual card game that we could think of. And uh, that's what Crimson Company became. Awesome. I have so many follow-up questions. I want to talk about the, the flaws that you identified in the other games. I want to talk about all the different uh, strategy card games that you that you played and that had an impact on, on the design on Crimson Company. But before we get to that, um, I would like to, um, to, to know a little bit more about um, how the, diff the roles are divided between you in, in the team, in the company of Crimson Company. So, Who is responsible for what in, in your company? That's a funny question because we basically never really talked about that and everything um, kind of uh, developed organically. Uh, Fabian is the CEO, first of all. Um, so uh, he is responsible for... The boring stuff. <laughs> yeah, he has to do the text <laughs> thingies. Um, but yeah, we try to mainly we are kind of similar because we are both game designers and both have a kind of, um, similar perspective on games. Um, so we are not very good in doing art or, or we don't do art or 
programming or whatsoever at all. Um, so basically, we do game design. And for all the other stuff, we try to um, hire other people. Um, but of course, we have to do a lot of boring stuff too, as Fabian already said. So to, he has to do text thingies. And we have to care for marketing, have to set up com the campaigns, have to uh, hire people and to do contracts with them uh, when we get a uh, uh, get the Bundesförderung, for, for example. Um, so, yeah, basically we really um, divide the stuff by workload and a little bit by if someone is better at, at something. Fabian, for example, is better at writing, especially in English. So whenever there's a writing tasks, uh, yeah, we, we try that. He does that, and I maybe write a little bit more with other people casually. I don't know. What would you say, Fabian? Yeah, I mean, we don't have like a strict, strict role separation between the two of us. Like, uh, we do the game design together, and the other things, yeah, basically on the fly when they're needed and when someone has time to do them. And, um, yeah, we, we try to look a little bit for, uh, the, the strengths, but yeah, we, we basically do all these things together. And then we, um, for the, for the digital version, we, uh, hired people that are very focused, like, uh, uh, UX designer that does like UI and UX and a programmer that does only programming and um, our artists, uh, Jana, Sophia, that we've been working with from the first edition of the card game, um, of course, just does the art things now. So that's th those people are very focused on their area. But um, yeah, the other stuff, we are basically just the, the co-founders that do everything that's required, basically. <laughs> okay, then let's uh, let's look a little bit more at the design process. Um, so uh, you already said that you um, have pretty similar mindset, but uh, was there a situation where you probably had uh, different opinions um, about uh, the game Crimson Company? Or um, what would you say makes you most... Uh, Yeah, what is the biggest difference between you as a as a game designer in the role of designing games? Um, I would say that we have a little bit the role that um, I try to give a little bit more impulses and Fabian tries to consolidate stuff or um, kind of... Uh, Yeah, do something useful <laughs> or something we can really use in the end. Um, so I can hardly think about any real situation in the development of uh, Crimson Company because um, most of the stuff stuff was quite obvious uh, when we analyzed it that we want to go for away and then we tried it out and uh, we found out it works or it doesn't work and that was quite obvious. I think the only situation uh, where maybe I was a little bit more pushy uh, was when we decided on um, where the problem in the 
uh, yeah, quite late in the design process uh, when we had the artwork done already and uh, the game was just before getting printed in this uh, early first edition. And we still had a problem with the round structure because uh, originally the game worked like the card game, uh, the digital game works right now. So you buy a card and you directly play this card. And in the physical card game version, that confused player players very much because they lost track uh, of whom's turn it is because the other player could uh, play a card in uh, this player's turn. So, um, and then we yeah tried things out and to fix that. And there was a possible solution we have now in the physical version that uh, each player kind of stores uh, the cards he buys onto his own deploy phase. My deployment phase um, and this was a little bit that I pushed a little bit more for it and Fabian uh, needed a little bit more time in order to get used to the change but uh, we did it in the end I would say this is the nuance that uh, kind of differentiates us a bit but I can't think of anything bigger I guess I was a little reluctant because it was my task to write the rule book <laughs> and the whole rule the uh, phase thing basically had to be restructured or the phases had to be introduced because previously we just had this, yeah, just written down one point after the other, basically. And it was confusing and definitely better to go with the, with the new version for the, for the physical game, because it's much clearer whose turn it is and uh, who's going next and whose, whose turn is it now to, to bid on the card or to, uh, to react on a bit. And um, yeah, so it, it was much better, but yeah, it, it was just a, a pretty significant change uh, in, at a time when we were almost ready to, to print this game, basically. So it, I'm, I'm glad we got it in, though. <laughs> yeah, I think it was one, one week or something before we went into printing, or it was uh, <laughs> not a good... <laughs> Too late. <laughs> yeah, not the best timing. Um, but we already get quite into the nitty-gritties of the game. So um, maybe it makes sense to to, to pause here and um, or step back and um, explain how the game actually actually works. What is the game about? Uh, what are the, um, the core rules? Can you give us a short introduction, please? Yeah. Um, it's a dueling game, as we already said. Um, it's about two players that compete um, for controlling three castles in the middle of them. And that's kind of a battlefield. So um, players um, play cell sort characters in front of those uh, castles. Once a player has four cell sort characters in front of one castle, so uh, on his side, not in some, uh, the castle gets scored. That means all the strength values each card has a little strength value on it, and uh, those get added up and compared uh, on both sides. And the player who has more strength wins the castle. And this has not to be the player uh, who played the fourth card, because it could also be that the other player with three cards uh, has more strength. So that is not very uh, likely, but in some situation that happens. And both players um, 
kind of uh, recruit those cell swords in competition to each other because each player um, has a um, yeah, storage of coins. Uh, and um, one player is always uh, on the turn. And on his turn, a player um, puts X coins on one card, on one cell sword. And the other player can then decide um, if um, it is okay that he buys um, the cell sword for this amount of coins. Or he has the option to put as many coins as already are on the card uh, from his um, storage on the uh, card. And then the um, player with the initial bid gets all the coins, so has doubled his initial coins, um, but the players, but the second player um, gets the card for that. And uh, this makes uh, kind of interesting gameplay together with uh, yeah a lot of uh, cool effects the cards uh, have. So um, each card, or oh, we can't say that anymore because we introduced now five cards that have no effect at all. But uh, in the original design, each card has a had an effect on its own. And uh, sometimes when you play the card, sometimes in a specific phase, and all these effects uh, interact with each other. And uh, yeah, the whole bot structure uh, and what is offered interacts with each other so that it's very hard to estimate how much is a card worth in a given situation. And that's exactly the gamble. Um, so you have kind of two, uh, two parts of the game. You have this uh, fighting part where you have to combine um, the abilities and the strength values of the cards in a way that you get an advantage and win the castles. And you have this um, other field of recruiting the cell swords for coins where you have to um, get a feeling uh, how many coins you have to bid on a card or at what point uh, when you are on the other side have to pass or take sneak the card away from the other player. Yeah. Yeah, and the um, effects are designed so that it's not um, easy to, to determine how much a card is worth. So an effect could be something like you can move a card to another lane so in front of another castle and depending on the board situation this could mean you immediately win that castle because it's the fourth card uh, you put into this lane or it could basically help you nothing and everything in between is also possible so um and the, the same is true for like card destruction effects and um we have this other special effect called flip where you can turn a card around and then it has zero strength and loses its effect but then when you flip it again then you can re-trigger the effect and this all makes the the evaluation process very complex so you never can really say for sure how much a card is worth and you always have to adapt your thinking based on on the current game state and um this is one I guess thing that's very different from other card games where you usually have cards that are, have like a fixed cost, like this spell costs three mana or whatever. And um, our cards don't have that. So for every card you try to buy, you have to determine the value for yourself in the current situation. And um, this also has kind of a 
neat side effect that the game kind of balances itself um, mm -hmm. because if a card is weak, then you just try to get it for one or two coins and um, your opponent then decides if they want to take it from you or leave it to you. And um, so a card can't really um, be uh, yeah, broken in terms of balancing. I guess um, there, there can be very swingy effects that, that might render other cards uh, meaningless. So we try to avoid those, but in general, we have a pretty wide range of effects that are possible because of this self-balancing kind of design. Yeah, but I, I really like us. that. I really yeah. like that. And um, it is uh, surprising how similar our, our games actually are. So um, let me give you an example before I come up with some follow-up questions. Um, so we have the same very same situation in our game. Um, we have something that is called the mind bug. And whenever you play a creature, um, there is no cost for playing that creature. Pretty similar to, to, to your game. There is no resource like mana in Magic, for example. Um, and as a result, it's uh, you do not have uh, cards that have minor effects. You don't have really bad cards that you need in the beginning of the game because you do not have, have enough mana. But you have the mind bug. And the mind bug is similar to, to your um, kind of auction mechanic. Um, so whenever in someone plays a creature, the opponent has the chance to, to mind bug it, so th to control the mind of it um, and actually take control of it instead of um, the player that played the creature. And that has a very similar effect. It is an auto-balancing mechanic because when you, pl you could play, literally you could play your strongest card in the first turn but then your opponent might take it from you and um, yeah, crush you with it. So um, you might you have to make your your strategy with that in mind. And um, this auto balancing mechanic is something that was really really helpful for us during the design during the design process. And that is actually something that helped us a lot to um, to make the game much easier than a lot of the other strategy card games out there because uh, in other games you have uh, you have things like uh, the resource system like mana for example that you need to take uh, keep track of and so on um, and um, in our case this is not necessary we just don't need it and um, I what I've seen from your game it looks pretty similar so do you think this uh, this auction mechanic, um, if you call it like that, or the the, the bidding um, had a big impact on the um, on the ease of play for your game. I, I just wanted to uh, say one thing. Um, Fabian said to, uh, to correct it a bit. Uh, he said that cards can be broken in our game, um, but this is not exactly the case. Uh, we have only this. Uh, we have a corridor that is. Uh, has some range, um, but we have to see that uh, cards are not totally worthless or totally overpowered in some situations. Um, only to some degree that uh, could be possible uh, because we have to avoid, for example, that it is a good move to put all your coins in the first uh, turn on a card and this is still good, for example. Uh, so uh, we have to 
balance for a certain corridor. And we have to, of course, see that the card effects are interesting in different uh, situations and um, the card has a different value in those situations. But uh, yeah, uh, first of all, your game uh, sounds very interesting, very cool. Um, I really would like to uh, have a look into it uh, later on or <laughs> someday, whatever. Uh, very interesting. And to the uh, yeah bidding system, uh, I would definitely say that this was a big uh, breakthrough. Um, before we kind of experimented, when we said we want to do this flawless uh, kind of version of Hearthstone uh, with um, kind of a supply uh, system or whatsoever, so because we wanted to somehow um, yeah, have two factors uh, you have to consider um, that you do not only have this uh, cost thing, but also some kind of economic uh, stuff. And when we uh, came up with, oh, cards uh, could uh, cost coins and um, different to other games where you pay for cards. We don't have to have fixed uh, costs for the cards, but we can um, make the player uh, kind of figure that out. Uh, that was a big breakthrough for the game because um, it made the experience uh, so much deeper with uh, relatively few elements because uh, kind of you have those two areas and both are highly competitive. So you have, you have the battlefield and you have this uh, offer and uh, your mind switches between uh, the both of them and that gives the game the opportunity to uh, really create a lot of depth uh, with yeah a small amount of game elements, I would say. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much uh, similar to, to, to our game as well. Um, and you now mentioned several times that you um, played Hearthstone and wanted to get rid of the flaws um, and that you played a lot of other strategy card games. So um, can you go a little bit into the details? What What actually um, were those other games that inspired you to create Crimson Company? And what were that, that, that flaws that you really disliked about those games? Um, yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the first game we really, like, went deep into was, was Hearthstone, as Dario mentioned in our lunch breaks. And we, we really did that regularly for quite a while. And um, as he mentioned, we didn't um, like the the constructed side of things too much because it got stale pretty quickly and it was mostly a matter of which deck you're facing. Like both players picked the deck blindly and then one deck was good against the other or not. And um, so we really focused more on this um, arena mode where you build the deck on the fly and... Um, Yeah, it still offered some interesting decisions um, quite regularly. And um, I guess that's also the one of the first uh, inspiration points also that we said from day one that we don't want you to um, 
bring pre-constructed private decks that you draw cards from and um, so the matchup decides the, the game before it even started and um, that's in the end why we landed at this uh, shared deck between the players in Crimson Company and um, you don't even draw cards into your hand you just um, play them directly onto the board when you buy them so we kind of through many of the typical CCG things uh, out the window, more or less. Also, the, the fixed uh, cost thing for cards that we already mentioned, we are also got rid of that. So um, through our iterations, we got further and further away from, from the traditional magic half-stone type of CCG. Um, one, one other inspirational game for, for us was Gwent, which had um the the lanes thing but um when we looked at this we kind of thought you could do more with the lanes because in gwent um the strength of all your units is just uh, summed up together and um like 70 or 80 percent of the time it doesn't really matter into which lane you play a unit because they they just stack up on both player sides and they don't really go lane versus lane or something so that's why we uh, divided the the crimson company board into these three clear lanes and um then yeah had much more interesting play around this uh this playing space that was actually meaningful because moving a card um, between lanes and crimson company has like a huge impact because you're going for a different castle there are different cards on the other side of that castle and the, the card might have a totally different meaning when it's in another lane. And um, yeah, but that was uh, another inspiration. And uh, the, the, the other one I want to mention is Prismata, which is a, a very, very interesting game that also had um, some similar philosophy approaches as we had, I guess. Um, they also wanted to make a very fair and uh, very skill-based game and had this uh, this random marketplace kind of where you bought units from. Um, and um, I actually like playing it a lot, but um, it's, it's the problem I have with it is that it's completely open information, so it's very chess-like and... Um, you quickly, when you, when you get better at the game and climb up the ladder a bit, then you get into situations where you basically need to calculate out the whole game on turn one and just find the best strategy in, in the random set of units and then do that strategy until the end because you're, you pretty much calculated it and decided from the first turn. And um, so we we kind of wanted a, a game that was skill-based in a similar way, but uh, we didn't want you to sit there and think through the whole game. We wanted, still wanted you to make decisions on the fly and think on your feet a little bit. And uh, that's why we have this, this more dynamic market, basically, because we have four characters on offer that you can buy and you can see the upcoming one uh, on top of the deck that will re re be uh, will be the replacement when you buy a character of those four. But um, 
you don't like see the whole upcoming deck or something. So you always need to react on what comes up. So we have this little bit of hidden information to uh, make the game more intuitive and easier to get into. Um, yeah, but other than that, we're still very uh, focused on the competitive side of things. Yeah, and of course, you can also not uh, know what your opponent will behave like. So in each situation, you always uh, bid the amount of coins on a card you think that it's worth in this situation. And you never know, uh, will your opponent pass or will he uh, take over this card? Uh, so your strategy um, can get screwed um, quite a bit, at least when you're not... Uh, way ahead of coins. Um, for me, also one branch Fabian didn't mention was this Dominion uh, Ascension Star Realms branch. Um, I played Star Realms quite a bit and they already have this um, shared offer that both players uh, buy um, the ships um, from one central market, but uh, the cards um, have fixed prices and what I did not like about this was that it felt uh, quite random mm, because uh, yeah, based on the amount of coins or of, of money you randomly draw, you could buy a card or you couldn't buy a card and uh, yeah, once you bought a card, another card of course came up and this was totally random if it was a card you could also buy, or if it was a card that um, you missed by one uh, money and your opponent could get, and it's awesome. Uh, so this whole deck shuffling and deck building aspect uh, with together with this market that showed up made the game uh, very, very random. Um, but I would say beside of this randomness factor, uh, we were... Um, we are already close, or this game was already closed, uh, close to Crimson Company. So you could say Crimson Company is kind of a mashup between Star Realms and uh, Prismata, if you would <laughs> give it kind of a frame. I also uh, read the um, the um, sentence uh, on your website, like magic and chess would have a baby. And that also describes it quite well. Uh, from my from my perspective, so yeah. you all, both of you mentioned um, that uh, the different value that each card can have a different value um, compared on uh, in different lanes or in different uh, game situations, uh, different board states. So um, and since every card seems to have some or most of the cards seem to have some kind of um, um, of effect or ability um, did you ever had problems with um, kind of um, board complexity so I mean you you got completely rid of this hand stuff where people like magic where people have seven cards in hand for example which uh, already creates a lot of uh, uh, mental burden and complexity um, but uh, from what I've seen you also have some uh, quite a bit of cards um on the table and when one lane will be closed for example they can uh, can be swapped to another lane and um, all most of that is uh, visible information 
Um, so did you ever had the the problem that some some players were overwhelmed by the amount of complexity? Um, maybe during your design stage when you had a different card complexity or I don't know more lanes or whatsoever. Um, or was this uh, this never a problem in your design process? I would say um, it was more a positive thing um, that we got into very complex or we get during a game into very complex situations because those are the at least solvable. That means um, even very, very experienced players uh, like us and we played hundreds of games. Uh, we even have in a game especially um, during uh, the end phase of a game, uh, some situations where we have no idea what the right amount of uh, coins is we should uh, bid on a card. So the difference is maybe two or three coins where you're not sure how much this is really worth now. And this kind of makes the difference in skill for the players. Um, so the complexity is not so much uh, what happens uh, on the battlefield because these combos you can figure out. And I mean, you have your combo in mind that you see and you ev evaluate uh, the word or the value of the cards based on this. And if you don't see the best combo or how you could win in another way, uh, it's not such a big problem, I would say. But then you are just not... Uh, such a good player but when you see the best uh, combination um, the problem still remains that you have um, problems especially when a castle is scored to really value um, the cards uh, you want to buy uh, right and this makes uh, the game so deep i would say Isn't that fantastic? So I, I have the same, sometimes the same feeling with, with our game because the the cards itself are pretty simple. Yeah, They are much more simple than in games like Magic or, or even Hearthstone. But the, the kind of different combinations and board states that challenge the players that can come up by combining those different simple card effects... Um, are always very surprising surprising to me, even after playing the games, uh, I don't know, hundreds of times. And that sounds pretty similar to, uh, for your game. Yes. Um, I mean, that's kind of the holy grail uh, of, of uh, mechanics-driven game design is always to make something very elegant. So it creates like a lot of complexity with relatively few and simple elements. And... Um, Yeah, that's that's also um, what we try to design for, and I think where we also arrived in the end. But um, to to get back to the uh, overwhelming complexity question a bit, like we also simplified a lot of things when we iterated uh, on the design. Like Dario mentioned, this uh, supply thing that we had in one of the first uh, prototype versions we made, and that got really complicated pretty quickly and you had to calculate around a lot and I think at some point we had like a, a combos based on a series of symbols on the cards or something like an idea like that and we also got rid of that 
And actually, that was a that was a funny story, um, because uh, yeah, I thought, oh, we need uh, some complexity in when we just have this uh, bidding mechanic, and then I or we made this, or I, th I think I uh, screwed this up, uh, made this combo based things, um, and then I uh, went uh, on vacation uh, with a friend of mine, and uh, she. I, I had this prototype with me and she said, no, she doesn't want to play this complex stuff. Um, we uh, should leave this. She only plays with me the game when we leave this uh, uh, combo, whatever thingy uh, the, with the symbols away and just have the cards uh, with the uh, with the strength values. And actually, this was uh, quite a lot of fun. So you could even play the game uh, without uh, any effects, um, because the core mechanism is so strong. Um, so we yeah reduced this and said, okay, each card uh, simply should have one simple effect, um, one simple effect for it itself. But of course, in combination, they get more complex again. Um, yeah, and we could have even what we did now uh, that we introduced some cards, or we will introduce some cards with the next expansion. Uh, that uh, will even have no effects at all. Um, it's kind of uh, an extension that you can uh, bring new players more easily into the game. Um, and yeah, that was a big reveal for me that it uh, didn't need this uh, additional complexity I uh, came up with uh, in order to be a real game, but uh, the, the strength values together with the bidding mechanisms is already enough for a game. And, yeah, and I, there, are, there are more examples of this like later on we uh, also reduced the, the number of cards that were in a lane um, because it was interesting enough basically or in, uh, varied enough and we also um, cut down the, the range of strength values from just uh, one to five in the end, because that was enough. Again, because we have this uh, range uh, we balance for. So if we give a card a strength of one, then it has a pretty pretty strong effect probably. But uh, we just realized we didn't need like strength values from one to ten or whatever. And um, I think we had from nine to nine in the beginning or something. Yeah, yeah, one to nine, and um, yeah, we we simplified a lot of things in the design process and yeah when we basically realized just the, the bidding mechanism with the uh, board structure with the lanes and the card effects is has so much potential on its own that we just don't need a lot of stuff around it and we also threw away some stuff where we found out it is not uh, valid to do so in most situations so in the very beginning you could bid on more than one card uh, in your turn and your opponent could have uh, could kind of match uh, whatever he wanted, but then we uh, found out that this is kind of uh, stupid, and uh, everybody only wants to um, bid on one card, as, except for some edge cases where one player has a lot of more coins than the other player. So we simply said it is only allowed to bid on one card uh, to make the whole thing more easy and to kind of help you players to get into the game. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's so awesome to to hear more about your design process. And I love that approach of uh, simplifying the game step by step and trying to achieve this elegance that you mentioned. And um, if someone tells you that your game design is elegant, I think this is a, a, the best compliment you can get as a as a game designer. Um, and I really think your game is. And um, what uh, I wanted to to ask you is which game mechanic or part of your game um, is the one you are most proud of from a game designer's perspective? And then I tell you what I think is the best mechanic in your game. Okay, cool. Haben, you want to start or should I start? I have two things in mind. Yes, I <laughs> so then I say one and then you say one and uh, maybe we have all. Uh, one thing we are most proud of is the, or I am most proud of, uh, is the uh, yeah way uh, cards are distributed. So the uh, bidding mechanic, because um, it is kind of straightforward, fast. Um, but at the same time creates a lot of uh, complexity and kind of um, makes your uh, thoughts uh, or gets you really deep into the thought process uh, how much you should bid on a card. Yeah, yeah that's one. <laughs> and um, <laughs> the, the other one I thought of immediately was the flipping effect that I mentioned before where you can uh, kind of deactivate cards by turning them face down and um, which is, was actually um, funnily enough also inspired by Gwent a little bit because they have these trap cards that uh, are played face down and then yeah you turn them face up in a certain situation and your opponent doesn't know what kind of trap it is and how they trigger it um, but Again, um, we try to kind of do a little bit more with the flipping. And so the flipped cards in, in our game are still units and can still um, win lanes. Or if you move, for example, a flipped card on your opponent's side um, to a lane where they already have three cards, then they might lose that lane because it's just a zero strength card you, you move there to... Um, to uh, trigger the scoring and um, so it was already um, quite interesting um, on its own the flip effect but later during playtesting we um, basically came up with that rule that you can build your own combos by by flipping face down cards face up again so um, if you have like a card that says destroy another card and then you flip it face down and later on flip it back up with another flip effect, then you can destroy a card again. And there are combos in the game where you can kind of, uh, yeah, build these mach little machines that trigger like a destruction effect every turn or give you extra coins every turn because uh, some cards flips, uh, flips another card. And yeah, this, this led to a lot of really cool, um, interesting combinations and possibilities. Yeah, to explain, uh, when a card has a deployment effect and the card was face down and is uh, flipped up again, the deployment effect would trigger again. Other effects wouldn't trigger, but only in their face, but the deployment effects 
trigger and the deployment effects tend to be the strongest effects in the game. So this uh, creates a lot of uh, possibilities because in some situations it might be even good if you flip your own uh, card, for example, uh, there is the Assassin, which has a only strength of one, so it does not cost much, but uh, can destroy an opponent card um, in the same lane, and this is, of course, very strong. Uh, so you might flip your own Assassin in preparation of destroying an enemy card. And yeah, there are some cards that even, there's the Mad Cook, for example, that uh, flips uh, a card each income phase of a player, and when you combine that with the assassin, you can uh, kind of destroy a card every second turn. We even introduced with the uh, first expansion a card that uh, the shadow um, that destroys a card and then is flipped. So you could even uh, destroy a card each turn. And uh, there are also cards like the um, the grave rubber. Uh, which uh, gets uh, coins, um, as much coins as the strength value of a card is, and then flips it. And uh, this, together with the cook, for example, creates uh, yeah, uh, a combo that creates you two coins each turn. And um, yeah, such things are cool because it's a very strong combo, but it's fragile because you have two cards involved. And if one gets destroyed, you can totally get screwed up. Uh, and that makes kind of the profile of the game that, uh, yeah, you again in this situation, uh, those two cards are very strong together, but uh, once one card is, uh, yeah, moved to another lane, for example, uh, the Mad Cook has maybe to flip itself, and that's, of course, nonsense. You don't want to do this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for explaining that. And, um, yeah, to be honest... Uh... The flipping mechanic is also the one that I would have mentioned um, as uh, my favorite uh, aspect or mechanic of the game because it it really adds an additional layer to the game. So from at least from what I've seen, um, it adds this entire layer of um, I maybe it's not the correct word, but I would call it engine building or combos or whatsoever. Um, and it does it in a very elegant way because in other games you have this engine builders like, uh, oh, you need to collect uh, three red resources here to uh, activate that ability over here. Um, and if you somehow can collect multiple of those uh, resources, you can trigger it several times or so. But it's so much easier to just uh, flip a card and flip it back. It's... Uh, um, yeah, I think it's it's elegant, and I, I like it a lot. Cool. Yeah, I think then we are all on the same page. What the <laughs> what the uh, yeah good things about the game are all the best aspects. Cool. Okay, now we we talked quite a bit about um, about the game, um, and I could I could ask you thousand more questions probably but we are already quite a bit of time into this podcast so um i would like to transition a little bit to um to um to your kickstarter phase and um the whole distribution stuff so um what were your first steps 
on on Kickstarter? Did you start right away with your your main game? You mentioned in the beginning something of uh, 1,000 copies or so, um, but I wasn't sure if this was a pre-Kickstarter or your first Kickstarter campaign. Um, or yeah, how how did you how did you start to to build your crowd um, on Kickstarter? Um, yeah, basically we started with um, funding our company, so we had the goal to go on Kickstarter and. So we kind of brainstormed what we would need for this and um, yeah, kind of uh, threw the money together, uh, what we thought we would need uh, with the uh, kind of mission to say, okay, in the end, that might be wasted, but it looks good uh, on our Vita. Um, and uh, yeah, then we paid uh, our artist to do the cards and um we then decided because i have had uh, read this in uh, jamie stickmeyer's kickstarter book um that we would do a little pre-campaign uh, or let's say we had all the cards already for print more or less and um yeah i think two weeks before we uh, had to um send them over to the printing company and It was even a process to get uh, there that it's so easy to print 1,000 copies because we uh, kind of didn't know didn't know that uh, before. So this is a story for itself. But um, then we uh, two weeks before we had to send the final um, files, all the artwork was ready, and we spontaneously decided, or uh, yeah, we decided to do a little pre-campaign. Uh, for print and play files. So um, we kind of said, okay, we do a little Kickstarter with uh, one with a 10 euro goal and uh, for one euro you can get the print and play files of our game. And we just put it in, on Kickstarter with no expectation at, at all because we thought, okay, uh, we hope to get the 10 euros from colleagues and uh, this exactly was Uh, one thing one colleague did. So at the end of the first day, we were kind of at seven euro and or after some hours and uh, <laughs> one colleague of us was uh, kind of, eh, what are you doing here? Uh, you should do a real campaign or you should wait and do it right and not uh, do such a crap. Um, so uh, I just give you the three euros, then you have your 10 euros and then it's over. Um But the campaign lasted, I think, eight days or something. And yeah, somehow uh, in the end, we got uh, over 200 supporters and uh, 690 euros or something because three people put in 100 euro for whatever reason <laughs> nice. just to support us. Yeah, that was very nice. And we were and really, weren't your parents, right? It weren't our parents. One was <laughs> our colleague. <laughs> cool. One was, uh, one was a friend of this colleague, and one was a Prismata player. Um, uh, and yeah, that was that was quite cool. And what did you do to um, to get to those 200 backers for that campaign? Did you do a lot of marketing? Did you have a, a big email list when you started, um, or was this just luck, basically? This was just luck. We didn't do anything at all. Uh, we kind of, uh, yeah, asked uh, 
two or three colleagues to uh, give us one euro or something. Uh, but uh, or I told them about this and they gave us a euro. Um, but uh, after that, uh, we did not do anything. We did a very, very crappy campaign video uh, in 20 minutes or something. Uh, we are not good uh, in front of the camera both. And uh, you see this when you look at the, at the video because we kind of uh, try to sell the used piece of our game there. And Which I will definitely do, by the way. It's very authentic, yeah. <laughs> and it's in the internet forever now. Now you said um, it. Yes, now I said it. And uh, yeah, but uh, in the end, we were quite happy within, after those eight days. And I think personally, this was a very big um, factor that the later campaign uh, kind of got a good head start because uh, that gave us, I don't know, 20, 30 backers in the beginning. And this is, of course, a big difference uh, to other campaigns or other developers who start their own campaigns and have, uh, I don't know, uh, two or three backers in the beginning. Um, and that rates you higher. And um, yeah, that was a very lucky thing, I think, that we had done that. Yeah. And I, I guess the, the print and play campaign was more in the the original spirit of Kickstarter, basically, where you support a cool idea someone has and they, they don't show up with like a finished polished, product, finished product yeah. and just sell it, but they just have this idea in their in their mind and they um like we laid out our our thoughts a bit on the campaign page like what is this about why are we making this we want to improve on weaknesses of other card games etc and i guess this also brought in um a few supporters over time and yeah this was our first step basically towards something like a mailing list like we had these 200 backers that we could contact by doing updates on that campaign and previously we really had nothing basically and uh, what is quite funny is that we um on purpose said we only do a print and play campaign because we want to do the real campaign later and when we came to the decision of doing the real campaign uh we had already um yeah sent our first edition to uh, some reviewers and already went to Essen uh, Spiel mm. uh, and uh, sent uh, and sold this uh, or parts of this first edition and um, yeah then we were not so sure if it is uh, kind of good or enough if we just sell this printed uh, games now on uh, on uh, Kickstarter uh, so we said we need something in addition and. Uh, so we kind of made up some uh, fake goals like, okay, for 35, no, uh, for 15,000 euros, we give you metal coins. And for 35,000 euros, we will give you, uh, give you um, molded uh, yeah, miniature castles. And uh, until we have reached this goal, we will just print you... Uh, the miniature castles with our 3D printer. And yeah, we, you see on this uh, how big our expectations were, where we thought we would kind of reach, I don't know, one or 200 backers, I think. 
And uh, in the end, we were quite astonished that uh, we got uh, over a thousand backers. And uh, in the very end, we were quite frightened uh, that we missed this uh, goal of uh, getting this injected molded castles, because then we would have to print all those castles with the <laughs> printers, and it was just not possible to do it for a thousand people. So we uh, kind of uh, shortened our goal uh, from 35,000 to 30,000 and uh, yeah, reached that still in the campaign. And so all were happy in the end. And uh, we did an additional print run of a deluxe uh, version um, and yeah, didn't use our first edition copies for that. That was That's kind a very of a nice behind-the-scenes uh, story about that. <laughs> yeah, that was a funny <laughs> twist. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. So one thing that I am always um, a little bit afraid of when it comes to Kickstarter, um, from both perspectives, from the perspective of a, a backer and um, um, a campaign initiator, um, a creator, so are the shipping costs. So if... If you are from Germany and um, a lot of board game campaigns really are from from USA nowadays um, on Kickstarter, um, you oftentimes have to pay more for the shipping cost than for the game itself. Um, and um, as a creator, you, of course, are a little bit... Um, anxious that you might uh, miss the right um, the right amount of the shipping costs for the entire world so um, I have seen that you I think you ship for three euros within Germany and for four euros worldwide so what were your experience with that how did, did you get to that number um, and um, caused it any problems for you or was it just fine uh, yeah we um calculated our shipping cost in a way that we uh, looked up. Uh, I mean, we have the um, positive thing that our initial game was very small and it uh, just fit into an envelope. Um, and there's this Warenpost Interna International uh, from the Deutsche Post. And you can send um, things worldwide for uh, €3.90, I think, uh, in uh, cost you have to pay the post. And um, we just said, okay, we uh, do this, then we have to buy the envelope and have some uh, struggle with it. So we just uh, take uh, five euros for shipping uh, internationally. And of course, we have also the sendings that don't arrive and we have to kind of resend and so on. Um, and yeah, this was uh, very sharply calculated. So I think we uh, paid a little bit on top of this shipping. Um, but of course, this low shipping costs uh, helped us um, to get uh, some backers or at least not scare uh, backers away because, yeah, it was obviously a new game. Um, nobody knew upfront um, and in the end it was quite a good value for this uh, five years of shipping and then getting a deluxe version with uh, metal coins and this uh, castle miniatures uh, I think it was 17 euro for plus five euros shipping when you were in the US um, that was quite good I think 
and it was uh, yeah barely the costs <laughs> we had with uh, with the thing. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that was okay. That was the first uh, campaign. It was never about doing uh, or earning much money with the game. That's um, pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, that was cool. But yeah, the chipping is definitely something you have to consider, uh, which can skew you up a lot. We were uh, yeah, quite lucky in having not uh, bigger boxes and could chip this way. In the last Kickstarter campaign, we did a collector's box, which uh, is uh, bigger, um, but we still uh, cared that we can at least send it as Päckchen internationally. Um, and Päckchen are not that expensive at, as real packages. Uh, so we could somehow send them internationally, but it was really uh, expensive. Um, I think it did cost 21 euros in shipping alone and the box, the standard box had a price of 29 euros. So we had for uh, international countries uh, almost the same uh, shipping like product price. And of course, that reduced the number in international backers. And but uh, what was cool for the US, we found a company uh, that uh, did the shipping for us. So uh, that booked a freighter that uh, got the games over to the US and they just chipped the game. Um, and that made it hopefully a little bit cheaper. They didn't send over the invoice yet, but um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was cheaper. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. So um, when it comes to your target audience, I guess you already have a, get a lot of feedback from, from players and um, they also ask you questions on Kickstarter and so on. So I'm interested, since our games are actually quite uh, similar, so I'm interested in um, how your target audience looks like, um, especially compared to maybe games like Magic the Gathering or um, other typical CCGs and TCGs. Um, would you say your players are more like those kind of players, like the typical CCG players that yeah, want to try out something new? Or would you say your audience is um, more of the typical board game player that uh, wants to, to try out uh, some kind of strategy card game? I mean, we, from the beginning, pretty much um, explained our game with this idea of... Um, fixing the ccg formula or something so um we believe that there are a lot of players who like ccgs or like the general feeling of, of playing ccgs like all the different combos that come up and um having this really focused duel against another player and uh, thinking on your feet to outsmart them and um we we generally try to capture that also in in our game um so i guess um ccg players that are kind of a little bit disgruntled with ccgs uh, are definitely one one target audience we are going for because that's like also how we got to making the game um and yeah we kind of also build it for ourselves and um, in that way also for, for other players with similar thoughts. I don't think we're really um, speaking to the, the, the uh, 
traditional board game or euro game crowd as much we we do have this um economic aspect of things so that might um get some interest from that side as well but um really overall we're more focused on the on the dual um aspect and um yeah try to gather interest from that um audience also with the the deck building game star realms um is also a similar mindset that you have going into the game and um yeah we also try to capture that mindset without um also repeating the things we didn't like about these other games yeah and i would say um our target audience is a little bit different to classical ccgs um because obviously the deck building and card holding aspect uh, is missing so i would say, and this is kind of a yeah i would say a little bit a creative um aspect maybe more of the game and so our target audience i would say is a little bit more competitive more um yeah focused on decision making and not so much on uh building up express expressing their creativity with the kind of decks they build whatever so i, I would say there's the difference because you build up your stuff during the game hmm. and yeah also and it's not really a deck builder but you put all the things uh openly uh, on the board so you don't have so much the gamble of uh how will your deck interact with itself and more the gamble of when you place a bit will your opponent uh match that or will he pass yeah. okay and um I, this was not your last Kickstarter campaign. So you have um, several expansions now for the game. So um, I guess this is also part of your of your business model, of course. Um, so before I ask you about your newest expansion and give you the chance to, to explain it to our audience, um, what do you actually do to, to keep the, your audience interested? So because you want to, of course, you want to sell them... Um, expansions in the long run you want to um stay engaged with them um and um yeah i'm interested in your um ways of staying in touch touch with them um in between the different expansions for example yeah we have a discord channel where ex uh, especially um, over the digital version um for the app uh, there are um discussions going on what to improve or what bugs uh, are in whatever um, so yeah we stay in touch over discord um, and of course we try to inform the community by kickstarter updates or by blog posts um, and also of course try to do a little bit social media with facebook and uh, yeah fabian is a bit into uh, twitter But yeah, we are clearly not that focused on marketing or not good at marketing. So this is uh, more something where we have the feeling, okay, we have to do a little bit, uh, but not that uh, yeah, there's a bigger plan or whatever behind that. Did you um, ever consider to, um, to hire some kind of marketing agency? Or I know that there are some agencies that uh, help to 
uh, increase uh, attention for a specific Kickstarter campaign? Did you ever uh, consider to working with one of those um, partners? Yeah, at some point uh, for the last Kickstarter campaign, we thought about working together with, how was it called, Fabian? Uh, Becker Kit, I think. Becker Kit, yeah. Yep. Because uh, those were the only ones, basically, uh, where people said, okay, uh, they are serious and um, they are good for some campaigns. Um, but uh, at the same time, we felt that um, it's quite, I think they require uh, one uh, $2,000 initial payment and the risk is on your side. So they try basically, the model is that they try to do as good with this uh, $2,000 uh, of marketing as they can. And for every um, sell they generate, they get X percent of the sell. So I think 15% or whatever. Uh, so they have only the risk of the time they invest uh, and you have the risk of um, yeah, paying this uh, $2,000 for nothing. And yeah, in the end, we said, okay, we are not sure if we really want to invest uh, $2,000 in Facebook marketing. And we are also not sure if uh, our very defined target group is really suited for such um, kind of marketing. So we yeah decided against it, um, and you hear um, kind of stories about those agencies over and over again. I think Becker Kid is uh, serious, and there are maybe some others who do a good job. But yeah, you get uh, many people contact you that uh, kind of promise you to market your game, whatever, uh, and you uh, pay them, and you always have the risk and they don't they just uh, promise you stuff but with no evidence so to say so this is a field we where we are quite uh careful uh for the next kickstarter campaign um, we have uh the strategy to do some influencer marketing so to get some videos out of uh kind of uh, channels we like that um that just present the game and I think this is a more, um, yeah, long-term uh, kind of thing because those videos stay in the internet and you can use them in order to explain your game, for example. This is better for us, better suited. So before we come to an end, uh, are there any other um tips or advice that you would like to to give to to the other game designers out there um, with regards to either game design in general or maybe um, uh, kick, approaching Kickstarter, um, your main lessons or so, anything that you would like to share with other game designers? For me, the main uh, thing uh, I misjudged, and I think from my experience, this is something many misjudged who uh, start heads over into an own project um, that you completely overestimate uh, that the world waits uh, for your game. Um, because, uh, yeah, I also thought, oh, we just have to bring this, print this somehow, 
this game and then uh, everybody uh, would like to play it or would like to own it, whatever. Um, so you tend to think as a newcomer that you are just one step uh, behind uh, getting famous or whatever. Uh, and this is definitely not uh, the case. Um, and so you should be uh, more cautious and try to be uh, realistic in order not to burn money or to, uh, yeah, kind of take too much risk. Mm. Because I think um, you can build up something, but it's more a long-term uh, thing. And um, it's, yeah, really, you basically overestimate the uh, impact your game will have or that the people will wait for your game, but you totally underestimate the effort you have to put uh, into the thing in order to uh, get something out uh, and or to build something up. And uh, this is something <laughs> I think you just can say and everybody has to do uh, his experience on its own. But yeah, the gaming market in general is very crowded also into the digital space, I think. Maybe one follow-up question before I hand over to you, Fabian, for your answer. Um, um, how long, when did you start? So how, for how long are you in the, in the market with, uh, with Crimson Company now? I think when I remember correctly, Crimson Company is a very focused project and very uh, relatively simple. And when I remember correctly, we started early 2017, right, Fabian? Yeah, that's what I would have said as well. I think you yeah, have something about uh, around, so in the, the winter, January, February, we came up with the first prototype thingies and more into the, into the spring when I was on my uh, vacation to Spain. Um, Or, or was it 18? I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> But, <laughs> no, I think it was 17. No, it was definitely 17. Uh, and uh, yeah, in the spring, or I think during until the summer, we got the basic uh, version of the game with uh, fake artwork. And then it took a whole year in order to, I think in, uh, in the end of uh, 2017, uh, we got the artist involved. And then the next year, 2018, um, in yeah summer, the all the cards were ready, and we could um, kind of do the print and play Kickstarter and could start the printing. And in September 2018, uh, the cards were printed. And then in uh, February 2019, we started the first Kickstarter. And then we had quite a pace with uh, having one Kickstarter every nine months about around. Um, but yeah, even with such a focused game and uh, yeah, relatively simple expansions, it takes a lot of time. Yeah, and I think you achieved quite a bit in the in, in this period of time. Um, I mean, running a Kickstarter campaign every every nine months or so is uh, it is challenging. Yeah, I mean. 
we are not wizards of the coast who can uh, push out a magic expansion all three months or so with some supplements in between um, for a small company like yours. Um, I think uh, this pace is quite good. Yeah, I mean, uh, we have a very uh, disciplined and good artist. Um, I think without uh, Jana Sofia, we couldn't hold this piece, their pace. And uh, it's even that there are breaks in between where we have no money or we don't need uh, an expansion. Uh, that's quite nice. Um, but yeah, the core system of the game is very strong. So uh, it is relatively to do a new game, of course. Um, yeah, not so much work to do in expansion. Uh, but yeah, I, we don't know of other uh, yeah companies of two guys doing this in their free time uh, that do uh, have uh, such a pace of relatively successful Kickstarter campaigns. I would say. Yeah. I agree. Um, that's a quite quite an achievement. So congratulations on that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so Fabian, anything that you would like to to share with our fellow game designers out there? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of what um, Dario said comes down to that fact that there's a lot more uh, to making a game or getting it ready uh, for a potential market than than just the game design part. So um, the the thing I wanted to say is kind of the the more game design version of the same message, basically. Um, there's this, this quote that uh, a complex system that works always um, evolved from a simple system that already worked, and you cannot design something complex from scratch that just works. And um, I would say that's really something you should keep in mind if you're doing this, uh, especially if you're doing this small indie, trying to make uh, your own game and nobody uh, tells you what to make or what to do. Um, you really should think about the scope of what you're making and um, don't try to like dream too big or try to... Um, make your own version of a triple a game with an open world and uh, all kinds of rpg mechanics and dialogue and story and cutscenes and everything just try to focus on a, a simple core idea or core mechanic um, that works and then build around that or um yeah at least have some clear and um, relatively simple to follow design pillars like we had when we started making a Crimson Company. I think that was very important that we, um, from the very beginning, were pretty pretty uh, focused, even when we still simplified the game um, from iteration to iteration. But um, we went into this with a pretty clear idea. And um, yeah, I think that's the most reliable way of getting to something that that really works is just yeah starting with a strong core and building around that and yeah always keeping your the scope of your design in mind i think we set up some rules in the very beginning yeah. like there are only characters i don't remember any of the other points but <laughs> the stick to somehow 
Yeah, like yeah. no spells and no 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 special cards. Just uh, every card is a character. That was like one of the the examples where we just said, okay, we think we can make an interesting game with where there are just characters, and so why not stick to that? Yeah, that we wanted to go a little bit away from this magic thing with interruptions and uh, that we have a neater order of uh, how things get re uh, resolved and so on. Yeah. yeah, I think this comes back to again to our previous point of um, um, reducing complexity a little bit and being elegant. And by only having one card type. Um, That's uh, actually quite the achievement. Yeah. And um, yeah, thank you so much for um, for sharing that uh, that insights and your experience with the with the entire audience. Um, I would like um, to give you now the chance to um, yeah to tell people a little bit about your um, your upcoming expansion, your upcoming Kickstarter campaign. Um, I know that there are a lot of listeners in this podcast uh, of this podcast that really um, like this genre and that kind of games. And um, yeah, you now have the chance to convince them to to buy your newest product. And um, um, yeah, you already convinced me, so I will be part of your next Kickstarter campaign already. So awesome! Thank you. <laughs> yeah, basically, uh, in the next Kickstarter campaign, uh, we will not only do a cool expansion. It's called Wildwood Tales, and you uh, can find uh, some uh, characters already in our blog. They look awesome. Um, but also we will uh, add uh, this additional five cards uh, I talked about uh, earlier to that, um, where the characters only have a, uh, yeah, have no effect, and this helps introducing new players to the game. Uh, yeah, but uh, the big thing we really do in this new Kickstarter campaign um, is that we pitch our um, yeah digital version, um, and this is really something cool and um, unique because this digital version already works on uh, Android and on uh, the Apple's. Uh, it's it's in the I'm not such, so the Apple guy. It's on the, the test flight. Test flight, it's yeah. called, yeah. And you can already uh, check it out. And uh, yeah, our big dream is that we somehow get this, um, yeah, digital version running, that we uh, get a player base that um, that is big enough to for uh, good matchups and... Um, we can kind of develop a tournament scene around Crimson Company because the game really is awesome in uh, yeah, uh, getting you to doing deep decisions very competitively and um, playing it against other humans is really awesome and very interesting and um, yeah, I think in a perfect world, uh, yeah, this would uh, become a yeah tournament-like game. I don't know about any game um, that uh, does not require me to uh, kind of uh, grind all the time in order to keep up with the competitive scene. 
uh, and on the same time is um, yeah, so skill based, uh, except of course the classics, maybe a chess or uh, go. Um, uh, equally uh, fair and uh, need not so much maintenance. Um, yeah, but of course, uh, with Crimson Company, we offer uh, a lot more of variety because new cards come out and uh, the games are also a lot faster. So uh, they're better suited for, uh, yeah, reading, getting into competition mode um, in a, a little amount of time when you're waiting for a bus and you're living where you two live some, somewhere outside of cities then <laughs> come on <laughs> <laughs> then you might uh, have to wait 10 minutes and uh, that's the perfect time for playing yeah but you know where we live out of the cities we barely have internet so that could be a problem <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah in germany in, in thailand for example we had internet on the last island uh, it's really amazing how bad the german mobile internet is yeah i'm actually quite happy that i didn't have any disconnects in this very long podcast session today um so um but i'm sorry but i have one more one more question i know it's already uh, quite a long episode but um that's something that really interests me um you mentioned that competitive aspect of your game um and that is part of this uh, dueling aspect that is the uh, one versus one game But I have somewhere seen that your game also has a two versus two mode and even a, um, a free for all or multiplayer mode. And that's something that I always really struggle with to translate this very good one-on-one um, -on -one games into a, a good multiplayer mode. So can you maybe explain in a few, in a few sentences um, how your multiplayer modes um, work? Yeah, Fabian, you're yeah, on I'm. Um, I mean, the two versus two mode is pretty similar to the one versus one mode. It's just two parties battling each other. Um, what we do there is that um, you basically both teams um, take turns um, after one after the other. So. One player from the first team goes, then one player from the other team, then the second player from the first team, and so on. And um, you you don't uh, combine your coins in this mode, so both players of a team still have to kind of keep track of uh, how many coins each individual player of them has and how many coins the, the both players of the other team have. And it it actually is very interesting because it adds a lot of... Um, an additional layer of complexity basically through this um this turn structure because it's very important like who goes next and uh, how many turns from now can this person do something actually and um so you you can of course you can always um both players of a team can always react to a bit of the other team but you only get your own bit like every fourth turn basically because you have to wait for the other players to go so it, it kind of creates this aspect of timing that the one versus one mode doesn't really have and um, that makes it maybe even more interesting and even more complex to play um, in that mode and um, Yeah, the, the free-for-all mode actually is a bit different because you like go around the 
uh, the table and you can play with like up to six players, I think. Um, and you have these borders with your neighbors. So um, in that case, not all players are like an equal threat to you, if you will, because you are only playing against your immediate left and right neighbor. And um, when you basically when a player loses and drops out, then you can't can merge um, the the borders of the two players uh, next to him and then create a new border. And um, yeah, so it, it, it's a bit different. And also the, the bidding works a bit differently. I don't want to go into too much detail, but this was more of a, uh, a longer design process because we really had to uh, change a lot of things. And this, by the way, is even more true for the for the solo and co-op mode that we also introduced with the with the last Kickstarter campaign, because they work like they work very differently. Like you don't have the bidding aspect, and it's more about drawing cards and making the best of what you get, and um, kind of figuring out little combo puzzles uh, that are generated by the deck of characters. And um, yeah, I. I thing it turned out quite well in the end but it's um a challenge of course if you if the further you go from the original game like one versus one is easy to translate into any one party versus another party mode but it's not that easy to translate it into free for all or solo mode or something because we didn't really think about this in the beginning at all we were just going for this the perfect dual game and uh, we didn't care for anything else. Yeah, and the funny thing is really that I personally like the two versus two version much more even than the one versus one version. Even so, we didn't have it ahead of in mind um, because it's really really cool what Fabian explained that you have to uh, see always when will a player be able to deploy his cards he bought and. Uh, which of the two opponents or which of the uh, two members of the team uh, should invest uh, his coins now in this card. It's really cool. And it's uh, also this feeling of doing something together uh, in the one versus one version. Of course, you are always totally alone uh, with your thoughts. And in the two versus two version, you also try to get into the mind of your uh, partner and not only in the mind of your opponents. That's cool. Yeah, I also I'm also a big fan of uh, two versus two um, implementations of strategy card games. Um, often like the the two headed giant versions um, of a game. Um, yeah, and our game also works as a two versus two player game. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's awesome, and I really like um, how you um, added these different modes over time. Um, with your additional Kickstarter campaign, I think this uh, is a very good strategy and um, shows your um, long-term uh, vision and strategy for the game. Um, yeah, I think this is a very good approach. So before we um, really end this podcast now, um, please tell um, the listeners where they can find you. Um, what's your website? What are your social media accounts? Um, and how can they um, be aware of your next Kickstarter campaign? Yeah, basically, you find us when you uh, type Crimson Company in Google and when you add a point .cc uh, in, the, in your URL um, bar, then you come to our website. And yeah, there is basically everything uh, linked. 
you need. And of course, you find us in uh, the Android store and in the other store and in Kickstarter. We are already on upcoming projects. Um, that means um, you can uh, click the notify button there, um, or you go to our website and uh, from there you get also to the uh, Kickstarter page. And this uh, actually would be cool because you get a, a mail then uh, once the Kickstarter launches and it also helps us a little bit um, in visibility because Kickstarter kind of tracks how many notifies uh, a game has. And the more, of course, the better it looks like. Yeah, and it's just one click. I did it uh, right away now, just five seconds ago. Cool. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Dario and Fabian, um, for this great interview um, and also for the, for your time. It's been uh, one hour and 40 minutes now. Um, so I wish you all the best for the, for the future of Crimson Company, um, for your Kickstarter campaign and um, your digital versions. Cool, yeah. Thank, Thank you, very, you much very much for the invitation. And it was a very interesting talk. Yeah. See you soon, I think. Um, you seem to have a great game there. <laughs> will be interesting yeah, to look at. I will into tell this. you more about it after the show. <laughs> okay, then cool. um, thank you very much, both of you. And um, to all the listeners, um, yeah, keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.